Father, thank you for your mercy and grace to us that comes to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by your Spirit. And we just pray, Lord, today as we begin this study, we, we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time in 2 Samuel. Lord, that this time in 2 Samuel, recognizing the Word of God is profitable, all Scripture is profitable, recognizing that 2 Samuel is profitable for the people of Israel. And I pray that your servant, your preacher this morning, by the Spirit of Christ, would show its profitability. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At one time, Las Vegas was a place for the outlaws and the outcasts. They would go there to hide. And then later, the, the city became the go-to place for live entertainment. We recognize the, the, the A-listers who began to come there and entertain on a regular basis, like the Rat Pack and, and Elvis. And then it became the place for family vacations. But in 2003, Vegas began to brand itself in a different way, as an adult's paradise, with the famous tagline, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Now, credit for that slogan belongs to the advertising company R&R Partners. And that campaign took off because of the message that it sent. When you come to Vegas, what you do and who you want to be um, all come without consequences. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Let's everyone think that no matter what happens, your secrets will be safe with us. Of course, this is utter foolish nonsense. We know that. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are in Vegas. Unfortunately, Saul didn't believe that. And so as early as 1 Samuel 13, we saw Saul offering sacrifices to the Lord. And that responsibility of offering sacrifices belonged only to the priest. Furthermore, he did not wait for Samuel, even though Samuel the prophet had instructed him to wait there in Gilgal. And he thought what happened in Gilgal would stay in Gilgal. Saul was wrong. And that sin meant that Saul would not be allowed to found a dynasty of kings. We saw that in chapter 13. And then in 1 Samuel 15, we saw him fail to devote to destruction all the Amalekites and their livestock. Again, Saul thought that what happened in Havilah and sure, would stay in Havilah, and sure. Again, he was wrong. And his sin there would result in the Lord's complete rejection of him as king. That was the language that was used. Which has now come to full expression in 1 Samuel 31, with Saul's suicide. In other words, Saul believed that what he did was not seen by the Lord. 
he did not believe that his actions would be judged by the Lord. He was wrong. Meanwhile, David, as a pattern of life, and we've seen exceptions in David's life, he lived his life recognizing that every word, deed, thought, or action is open before the Lord and will be ultimately judged by him. And so at the same time, while Saul and Israel are being subjugated, defeated by the Philistines, Saul, David was cleaning up Saul's unfinished mess by striking down Israel's perennial enemies, the Amalekites. To use the language of 1 Samuel 30, he was recovering, he was rescuing, all that was taken, nothing was missing, he brought back all. And that's how 1 Samuel concludes and serves as the context as 2 Samuel opens up. And 2 Samuel begins with an account that we will see reflects this glorious trajectory change that Israel is about to experience by no merit of her own. In fact, it begins with a, a recognition of justice. And now in verses 1 to 14, we see this justice that is revealed on the third day. Notice me in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now there are two expressions here that kind of give us the setting for the chapter as 2 Samuel opens up. First of all, after the death of Saul. Now this refers to the events of chapter 31. We saw that last week. God had given idolatrous Israel what they wanted in a king. They wanted a king like the other nations because they had rejected God as their king. Ironically, Saul's name means asked for. God had given Israel what they had asked for in Saul. And, and Saul's death serves as a kind of microcosm of Israel's spiritual condition at that time. The second line here in verse 1, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. That takes us back to chapter 30. And we saw that chapter 30 and chapter 31, those events occur simultaneously with each other. And this refers to his victory over Israel's perennial enemies. And so David has defeated the Amalekites and he has restored all that was lost. That's the context. Notice in verse 2. And on the third day, Behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now, I believe that phrase on the third day has theological import. Because it's a term that we see over and over in the scriptures. It's a frequent motif. For instance... On the third day of creation. Now, let me just say, when you read Genesis 1, Moses intends by the Spirit for us to read that literally. 
And on the third day of creation, dry land emerged. And from that dry land, vegetation, plants, fruitful trees. In other words, on day three, we see our first glimpse of life. That's important. And then later, Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Isaac on the, the stake, about to die. And God provides a Savior in the realm in a thicket on the third day. At Mount Sinai, God comes down to the mountain on the third day and cuts a covenant with the people of God, with Israel. Hosea sees a day when even as the northern kingdom has been depopulated by the Assyrians, he sees a day when God will restore the fortunes of his people. And after two days, Hosea 6.2 tells us, he will revive us on the third day, the text tells us. He will raise us up that we may live before him. In other words, in all of these texts, a kind of transition to life occurs on the third day. Most recently, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, we saw this briefly. I told you I would speak more about it later. Today's that day. In chapter 30, David the rescuer comes to Ziklag on the third day. Ziklag had been destroyed by the Amalekites. And so the rescuer comes to Ziklag on the third day, after it had been pillaged. And on that day, on the third day, David himself experiences a kind of revitalization as he strengthens himself in the Lord. And then on that, in that narrative, it tells us that there was a, a particular messenger from the Amalekites a servant of the Amalekites, who had not drank water or eaten food for three days, and he is revived by the Anointed One on the third day. This repetition of three or the third day stresses that these events mark a vital transition to life. And in this case... The third day signals that the nation has died in Saul, but is about to be raised in David. That's the point of 2 Samuel. Now look with me in verse 3. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, David likely recognizing there's some real bad news about to come. He said, I have come, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now, Saul's death here reveals 
that the consequences of apostasy, the, apost uh, the consequences of sin, are massive unless our sins are forgiven. Unless our sins are forgiven, God's promised judgment is certain to come. And Saul's judgment is reflective of that. And David, for a long time, knew it was coming. All the way back in chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, we, we recognize that David saw that Saul's day of reckoning was coming. 1 Samuel 26, 10, As the Lord lives, David writes or says, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Three options, David says. It's going to happen. And remarkably, all three of these things came to pass on that battlefield. All without David manipulating the circumstances. Sometimes we feel like God has to be helped or manipulated. David did not manipulate any of those circumstances. Now notice verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord." And so the Amalekite presents his act as a mercy killing. It sounds a lot like today's defense for euthanasia that's taking place in Europe and Canada and is sure to come to a neighborhood nearby if we continue on our course. After all, Saul was about to die anyway. This was just mercy. So when you hear that reasoning, when you hear that defense for euthanasia, remember you heard it from a Malachite first. And David certainly is not impressed with his defense. Having said that, I believe the writer intends to, for us to accept the earlier account in 1 Samuel 31 as factual and, and to see this as a lie. There's no contradiction in the text. The same writer who wrote 1 Samuel 31 wrote 2 Samuel 1. In the original Hebrew, these weren't divided books. There's just one book, Samuel. And so the, the writer intends us to believe his narration of chapter 31, and to see the Amalekite and his argument here as a lie. As Del Ralph Davis argues, 
If you ever have a choice between the narrator and an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. And the improbability of his explanation, I think, drives that home. The idea that the king of Israel could be isolated from everybody else in a battle and then have to plead the services of a complete stranger who just happened to be on a battlefield. It's just too far-fetched to believe. Having said that, his possession of Saul's crown and armlets certainly indicates that there was some truth to what he was saying. It's likely that he had come across this battle, maybe even after the battle, maybe he went there to ransack and to pillage, knowing that that's what battles will leave people, things left on dead soldiers. Whatever it was, before the Philistines came and, and stripped Saul's corpse, he took the crown and the armlet. The Amalekite clearly believed that David would be impressed. He believed that David would be appreciative and that the Amalekite would benefit from David's appreciation. But when we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can have some advantage in life by deceit, by moral compromise, by lies, by broken promises, by betrayals. That's the spirit of this Amalekite. We're no different than him. And how easy to think that God needs supplementing. I mean, that goes back to the fall, doesn't it? That God hasn't given us everything we need, so we need to go get ours. How easy it is to think that God needs help by our moral compromise. Well, while the Amalekite here in his self-love was oblivious to the significance of Israel's loss, David was not oblivious. Notice with me in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Again, there's a principle that is preparing us for the gospel. As the king goes, so goes the people. The king had fallen. Israel, so to speak, had fallen. And David's example here reminds us that God's judgment is always a call for grief. Now, why would I say that? Because as Isaiah 28, 21 tells us, God's judgment on sin is his strange work. That's the exact language that's used in Isaiah 28, 21. God's judgment on sin is is his strange work. Now we can certainly understand why the Amalekite would have believed that David would have celebrated. Maybe it's been a decade or so that David has been on the run. Saul has taken precious years away from David. 
And David also knew that if he was going to go back to his family and his land and his people, and if he was going to experience the fulfillment of the promise that God had given him that he would be king, all of that was contingent upon Saul's death. And yet, grief and mourning is David's response. Now, why is that? Well, a couple of reasons, I think. David, first of all, likely knew the spiritual principle that his son Solomon would later pen in Proverbs 17, verse 5. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Of course, there's a tension here as well. All good doctrine, all good theology has tension. Because it comes from the mind of an infinite God. Not contradiction, tension. If you lose the tension, you're out of balance. And so he, he grieves over this judgment. And yet there's places like Psalm 101 where, where David will write, I will sing of your justice. David says we should be singing about the justice of God. Not just the love of God, which is a lot of contemporary songs. I will sing of your justice. Why would he sing of God's justice? Because when God's justice is rendered, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But sin and the need for judgment on sin isn't the way things were created to be. There was justice in the Garden of Eden before sin. There was justice in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And because there was no sin, justice did not reflect itself in judgment. It reflected itself in righteousness and equity. Those are the two terms that always travel or seem to always travel with justice in the Bible. So as we see sin is judged, it's actually a good thing. But it should remind us, indeed, we should tremble before the holiness of God, knowing that apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ, we are as deserving as, of punishment as those who are receiving the judgment. We deserve it as much as anyone else. A second reason I believe that David grieves here, and this is so important for us, because inevitably, if you stay in a church long enough, if you stay in a marriage long enough, if you stay in a workplace long enough, you stay in a neighborhood long enough, this second principle is so important. David had been nurturing sanctified, merciful affections towards Saul. It's the Proverbs 16.3 principle. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. Now, translations say different things there, but there's a semantic range. And one of those words that that word can be translated, it is your thoughts. Your thoughts will be established as you commit your works to the Lord. Your affections will be established. 
Your feelings will be established as you commit your works to the Lord. And so when you are behaving as if you love someone, even though they may not be loving you back, in time, you will come to increasingly love them. Now, the converse principle is true as well. If you are behaving as if you dislike someone, whether it be ill actions, ill words towards that person or about that person, in time, you will come to dislike them more. Saul had spent the last decade of his life seeking to hurt David. And as we saw, he came to hate David more and more. It's that principle. Conversely, David had behaved as if he loved Saul. And so through time, even though Saul mistreated David, David had come to love him more. It's a very important principle. We sometimes wait for our feelings to come before we will love someone. It's just the reverse. One other point here. Our reaction to sudden news about someone, a particular acquaintance, will reveal a lot about what we are cherishing in our hearts. For instance, if you hear something bad has happened to a person and you in your heart get happy and you've been there. Or something good happens to a person and in your heart you get really jealous and you get really discontent. Those reactions reveal sin has been cherished in your heart. Here, love is revealed. It's remarkable. How could he love this man? Love is revealed from David. And it wasn't the first time. On several occasions, David had been more concerned for the sanctity of Saul's person as God's anointed king than for his own safety. He'd been given opportunities to kill Saul. But he, he chose the precepts of God over his flawed interpretation of providence. We have flawed interpretations of our providence, don't we? That's why we need the Word of God to, to rule over even how we interpret our circumstances. It was love. And here, there, it's no exception. Notice in verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. That must have been quite shocking for David because he just got through taking on and de defeating the Amalekites. And David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Zeal. Zeal for God's name. Zeal for God's anointed one. And this respect for Saul as the anointed one 
was what controlled David in 1 Samuel 24 and 26 when he had the opportunity to kill him. And, and David here teaches us that we must treat as holy everything God has set apart. So what are the things that God has set apart? We could do an entire series on that. But some of the things he has set apart is his word. The word is described as the holy word of God. It is set apart. So when you don't read the Bible, when this is not your source of life, when you do not see this as the word of life, as your bread and as your water, you're not treating the Bible as holy. Or corporate worship. Worship is considered a, a holy expression of God's response to His mercies. But if you see corporate worship as something you can take or leave, you're not treating it as holy. Or the ordinances. If you, if you have... If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have never been baptized, you don't see the need for baptism. You're treating a holy ordinance as an unholy. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, spiritual leaders. Not to sound self-serving, but just to be faithful here. 1 Timothy 5 says to, to treat and honor your spiritual leaders who have been set apart by God rather than to criticize them. Pray for them. God's people. Do you know that 1 John 2.20 says that if we're in Christ, we are anointed of God? We have the anointing from the Holy One. We are in union with Christ, the Holy One. And so to mistreat each other is to mistreat that which God has set apart as holy. And David, as the anointed true king, gives us a foretaste. This is just a mere foretaste, but it's a foretaste of the destiny of everyone who does not treat as holy everything God has set apart as holy. And that brings us to the justice rendered on the third day, verses 15 and 16. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. The irony here is that the Amalekite is punished for what he said he did, even though he didn't do it. The judgment of God found him in his lie. He repaid him in line with his intent, if not his action. So even if the Amalekites' claim was false, the fact that Saul's royal insignia, his crown and his armlet, was taken by one of the members of the people that Saul was called to destroy can only be seen here as an expression of divine justice, as communicated through his anointed future king. In other words, what happened at Mount Gilboa did not stay there. 
according to Jesus, judgment is as assured for secret as for public sins. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. That's sobering, isn't it? Are hidden that will not be known. Paul will say, likewise in Romans 2.16, On that day, that is the day of judgment, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There's coming a day when the secrets of men will be judged. So what we see here at Ziglag is a preview for us all of that day. The notion that we can live in our Creator's world and do things in conflict with the Creator's revealed will in His Word is a foolish miscalculation because it overlooks the critical element that was overlooked by this Amalekite. What did he overlook? What was the critical element that he overlooked? The character of the king. The character of the king. At least the future king. It was David's righteous character that exposed the notion that the Amalekite could actually profit from his wrongdoing. We tend to believe that too, that we can somehow profit by going rogue. And David's righteousness here exposes that, that lie. And it was his righteousness as the anointed future king that judged the unrighteousness of the Amalekite. But as we're going to continue to learn, and we've already seen, David's righteousness is just a mere shadow of the righteousness of the one who is now and forever king. Just a pale, pale shadow of the true king's righteousness. And the righteousness of God expressed through the righteousness of this true king, King Jesus, is bad news for us all. It's bad news for us. Why do I say that? Because what happens in your private thoughts, my private thoughts, what happens behind closed doors, what happens when no one else knows and no one else is watching, does not stay there. The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. This means... I want you to think about this. The righteousness of God is our biggest problem. The righteousness of God is our biggest problem because we, like Saul and the Amalekite and even David, are naturally unrighteous. That's why our real crisis is the righteousness of God. But the solution is the righteousness from God. You see the distinction? 
Our greatest crisis is the righteousness of God, which condemns us, drives us to our knees in guilt. But the righteousness from God, as revealed in His Son, raises our eyes to the Son as our only hope. Now, how does that work? Well, let's go back to this motif of the third day. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will write these most hopeful words. Christ died for our sins. Now, Christ is the Greek word for anointed one. The anointed one died for our sins, not for his sins. That's Saul's sin. Christ died for our sins. Our sins that are a whole lot more like the Amalekite sins and Saul's sins than we could ever imagine. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, revealing that death had taken place, that He was raised on the third day. Raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Where does it say specifically in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be raised on the third day? It's found in the motifs of hope that happened on the third day. Life from death. Life from non-life. On the third day. So on the third day, justice was revealed to have been satisfied. That's one of the glorious purposes of the resurrection. When Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished. It was finished. And the resurrection on the third day revealed that publicly. It was a death of justice. Justice on us. But through the substitute. And when that glorious truth takes hold of your heart, progressively, increasingly take hold, takes hold of your heart, fear, awe, love, and gratitude will result. Because what happened on the cross and in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ did not stay there. It came to us by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. And that is our response when we understand that glorious gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow because of a greater king who would come and yet punish sin but have that sin punished in his own person so that we might live. And now because of that third day event that happened in history, time and space, some 2,100 years ago, 2,000 years ago, we live.
And I pray, Lord, that that gospel would increasingly take hold of our hearts, that we may walk in the fear of God behind closed doors when no one is watching. And Lord, I pray if there's any here who never trusted in Jesus, I pray that they would be compelled to come talk to me about what is the gospel? What does it mean to have your sins forgiven? What did Jesus do that we might be forgiven? And we pray, Lord, that gospel would inform every word, deed, thought, and action of our lives. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen.